Amen. If you will, open your Bibles uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read uh, the first 28 verses in that text in just a moment. Uh, In the four Gospels, we have uh, four harmonious, that is, complementary accounts that describe uh, the events of that first uh, Easter Sunday morning. Here in Paul's epistle to the church at Corinth, we find the fullest doctrinal examination, the doctrinal exposition of the reality of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads me to ask of you a question this morning, and I wish that I could survey the entirety of those that have gathered on a Sunday such as this. But the question is this, why are you here? Out of all the places that you could be, why are you here? Some of the more astute might say something like, since it was ordained before the foundation of the world, I'm here. Good answer. Some might say, well, my family always does Easter. Another reasonable answer. Maybe some uh, would say that hopefully, prayerfully, we're moving toward the end of these COVID issues. And I've had COVID. I've been vaccinated. I feel safe that I can go out and be among people. Again, a reasonable answer. But let me say to you that the real reason that you are here today and that for 2,000 years on every successive resurrection celebration morning, the people of God have gathered and they have said with one voice as the angel first announced, Oh, He's not here He has risen. He is. He is. He is alive. So let's read, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Uh, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, 
so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is not true that the dead are not raised. For if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, for Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, is accept, all, <clears throat> that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank You for the sure, for the certain testimony that when Jesus Christ proclaimed, it is finished, that is, His sacrifice for our sin was accomplished. And in His resurrection, He has defeated the very powers of death, and He has done it on our behalf. And it is true. It is real. It is the reality upon which we may be certain. It is the reality for which we have gathered here today. I pray that you, again, would be glorified among your people as your truth is proclaimed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the interesting things about this book of Corinthians is that it doesn't divide as easily as maybe the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians does. That is, uh, entering into a, a clear uh, set of uh, doctrinal affirmations and assertions in the first part and then uh, practical admonitions in the second part. We find interlaced uh, with uh, some uh, development and some uh, insight into the particular problems that had come upon uh, the Corinthian church, the insertion in the midst of those discussions of the great doctrinal truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, when he first uh, addresses the issues uh, within the church, that there were divisions, that there were uh, factions among them, he says, I want to talk to you. And the way I'm going to talk to you is on the basis of the gospel. The gospel that the uh, intelligia of this world consider uh, to be foolishness, that the world has uh, indeed rejected. He reminds them 
that as he arrived in Corinth from uh, some, from some very difficult encounters throughout uh, uh, southern Europe. He said, I want to remind you that, that I came and I preached one thing and only one thing, and that was namely Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I reminded the group here on Wednesday night that was actually the very first sermon I preached at what was then Centercrest Baptist Church from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through five, that I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the work of Christ on the cross for us. And so as, as Paul addresses practical issues, what does he do? He pulls back and says, the only way that we can know unity and power in the church isn't because I can solve all of the petty problems that tend to occur among any group of people. It is because we're unified by the power, by the testimony, by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he begins to address this issue here in verse 1. He calls the church to remember, that is namely to remember the sufficiency of the resurrection. It is a sufficient witness that should prove to every mind that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the offer, the accomplishment of the forgiveness of sin is a true and a valid offer. He says, remember what I preached to you. Remember that I did, I emphasized the great reality of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, of His atoning work at the cross at Calvary. And recall that you received it and, and, and you've, you've stood on that great truth. And when he wrote the Thessalonican church, Paul reminded them that when they heard this gospel, that it, that it came to them in, in great power. If we would have power in the world today, it would be directly, it would be intrinsically, it would be essentially associated with the proclamation of Jesus Christ. That is the only place. That is the only person in whom there is power for which lives will be changed. So he says, remember this, you believed it? And in a very real way, like those in Thessalonica, you turn from your idols, you turn from your religion, you turn from that which held you, and you turned and trusted in the one true God, the living God, the God that sent His Son into the world and then raised Him from the dead. You are now standing upon that grace and you're standing in uh, the realm of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're to realize that you are being saved. Notice that. Notice that being saved. That's actually one verb in, uh, in the Greek language. And it, it's a, a present tense verb. In the, in the Greek, a present tense verb not only emphasizes something in the here and now, but the idea of ongoing. Now, when we think about salvation, there is a reality you have been saved. There was a moment in time that you were dead in trespasses and sin, and as Joe sang, and He made you alive. You were dead, you were blind, you were that hope, and He made you alive through the working of regeneration. So we have been saved. And there's a truth that one day we will ultimately and finally be saved. 
That is, upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, He will raise these corrupted molecules and He will restore them. And I, my body and soul will be together forever. And so we will be saved. But there's also a reality that we are being saved. That the work of the gospel never is completely finished in this life. That we are in the process of sanctification. That just like every other living thing, if Christ lives in you, He will cause you to live. And so we're being saved. We, we, we have been saved from the penalty of, of sin. One day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And we're being saved right now from the very power of sin in our life. It does not have authority over us. So you're to, to think about that. You're to, to remember and recall and reflect and realize that God is working in you. The very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now think about the power it would take to resurrect a body. That power is at work in those who believe. And then he offers a, a warning here. If you hold fast, that verb is katako, from, from which we get catechism or catechize. That, that, the, the idea of clinging to, being attached to, being essentially integrated into this great truth. You're, the reality is you're being saved as you hold fast. And then, unless you believed in vain. That is, should you quit? Should you turn back? Now, one of the tragedies that I have observed in certainly Southern Baptist life, but probably all of, of evangelical life, is the de-emphasis of the importance, the priority of what the Reformers sometimes refer to as the perseverance of the saints, probably more rightly referred to as the preservation of the saints. That God by His grace, the grace that saves us, preserves us in holiness. He preserves us so that we persevere, continuing in the faith. Every major figure in the New Testament, every author, I believe this will be true, you can, you can check me on it, warns against false teachers, false doctrine, and false professions. Jesus Himself warned against believing in vain. About a, a, a faith that's, I agree, it's kind of comfortable. That, that kind of works for me, as it has in our culture for about two, 250 years. It's no longer going to work in the culture, folks. Okay? We're going to lose that, in some, in some ways, thankfully. Because that which is real and powerful and genuine will shine as the stars in the night. And so this stands as a warning that you must hold fast. You must persevere. If you're a true believer, no, you can never lose that salvation. But that truth, that power, that grace will constantly, continually manifest itself in your life. You have a faith that works. 
to say it in a simple way. So, there is a sufficiency that gives us confident testimony to the reality, the truth, and the power of the gospel. And then we see Paul move into what, he, what I call the centrality of the resurrection. Again, he's reflecting, I delivered the most important things. Now, churches like every other entity in the world, we get caught up in secondary things. We get caught up in things that are just, at the end of the day, really just a distraction. And we always need to be pulled back into that which is of first importance. And so Paul says that, that, that I delivered what God gave to me. In fact, those words there, received and delivered, are actually words that are used technically of passing on kind of official, rabbinical, or even in the secular world, official uh, uh, teachings of the scholars or, or the rabbis in Judaism. And so he is saying that I didn't, re- that I didn't make it up. It doesn't originate with me. I received it. And of course, Paul, we know, received it from the resurrected Christ. And he is faithfully delivered to the Corinthian church. He has given them a trustworthy witness. What did that witness consist of? Well, notice there's three issues there. The first thing... and, and This may have been some type of hymn. It would work. It may have been some type of early catechism or or confession of the church, okay? One of the things that that kind of aggravates me about Baptists sometimes is, you know, they say, we don't do creeds. Our creed is the Bible. Well, what does the Bible say? Well, I don't know. But it's my creed. I just don't know what it says. As Ron Dunn is accused of saying, Baptists say they believe the Bible, but they wouldn't say that if they knew what it said. And so, again, he is saying that Christ died for our sins. That is, he, he died in, in fulfillment of the Scriptures. He, he died in our place. He, he died efficiently and effectively and peculiarly for our salvation. He is the one and only offering that could settle our accounts before a holy God. We often speak of the atoning work of Christ as penal and substitutionary. That is, He died the death we should have died. He received the hell we should have received on that cross as our substitute, suffering the right and the just and the holy and the necessary penalty for our sin so that we indeed would be saved. Y'all remember that big fancy word I like to throw out at you? He was our propitiation, or He was God's propitiation for our sins, that He satisfied the rightful wrath of God about our sin on the cross. He also expiated our sin. That is, He removed our guilt. We are Those who believe are no longer guilty before God. The guilt has been removed, and not only has the guilt been removed, but because of the work of Christ, we have been counted as righteous without fault to stand before that throne. And so the Scriptures affirm that Christ died for our sins. And remember, the Scriptures that Paul is talking about is what? Those Old Testament, what we call our Old Testament. Because, again, the New Testament essentially hadn't been written. This is one of the early books, probably written in the mid-50s of the first century. So Paul is saying the Old Testament testifies to the Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? Jesus said the same thing. 
pity you who are slow to believe. Did not the scriptures have to be fulfilled? And then he exegeted and exposited the Old Testament as it told his story. And so he was buried. Now it's occasionally argued that Jesus didn't really die. He just had heat stroke. He went in, got a little Gatorade there in the tomb, and out he popped. It's called the swoon theory. It's hogwash. They buried him because that's what you do to dead people. No Roman executioner worth his salt would have let a living being off of a cross. In fact, had he, he would have had a cross for himself. You can be sure he was dead, and they buried him. And then he was raised. And again, the Old Testament speak to this. If you'll remember from last week, what did Peter preach on Pentecost? That the Old Testament prophets anticipated, they looked forward to the day that the greater son of David, that the Messiah, the anointed one, would be raised from the dead. How does the Holy One not undergo corruption? You raise Him from the dead. You stop the process in its tracks. And so, He was raised. And that, and, and that is central. We are here. Why are we here? Because He's not in the tomb. He's not in the tomb. He's among us, but He's not in the tomb. He's at the right hand of the Father, but He's not in the tomb. And so, He has been raised from the dead. And that is just the center of what we proclaim and who we are as followers of a resurrected Savior. Now, Let's move down into verses 5 through 9. I want to talk about the certainty of the resurrection. And there are six lines of evidence. And we could call this apologetics. Paul wants to prove, beyond all reasonable doubt, that what he is saying about Jesus Christ as a crucified, buried, and resurrected Savior is rooted in reality. One of the problems we are having in this culture is we are redefining History. History is an accurate record of what actually happened. But we're in the process of rewriting history, but you cannot rewrite what really happened. It has to be reported accurately. And so what is truth? Truth is that which conforms to what actually happened. What conformed to reality. Just because you say Jesus did not was not raised from the dead, does not change the reality one iota. He has been raised from the dead. And so he gives six lines of evidence here. He appeared to, he calls him Cephas here, Peter. Then he appeared to the, the full count of the disciples. And the twelve simply is a, a title. In other words, we know that it was a, eleven. Judas had hung himself. He had defected. He had apostatized. Then he appeared to 500 at one time. Now, I can trick one or two or three of you occasionally if I wanted to. But to trick all of you at the same time in the same way about something is beyond the realm of what can be accomplished. And so Paul is saying, listen, 500 peoples gathered in one place at one time and they in unison say they saw the resurrected Christ. That is a credible, unimpeachable testimony. And then he appeared to James, his brother. Okay, his brothers did not believe until after the resurrection. Then he appeared to all of the apostles. That is probably something that goes beyond 
the 12, more, more, more kind of uh, apostle designates and associates there. And then finally, he says he appeared to him, to Paul, look there at verse 8, as one untimely born. I don't, I don't think I have time today to unpack exactly what Paul means by that. It's an interesting word, ectroma, is sometimes used of describing an abortion or miscarriage. And so usually that has to do with a, a premature type, an early delivery of a child. And in a sense, Paul was later in his delivery to the gospel. So not sure what he means, but he simply wants us to know that his calling, his conversion, stood in distinction from the experience of those first apostles who actually walked around the Sea of Galilee with the Lord Jesus Christ. That his circumstances for his conversion and his charge and call to ministry and to gospel proclamation was entirely different from that of, uh, of those first disciples. But his point is this. We can be certain. A few years ago, there was a, a novel published, and it was not a very good novel. I think I started it about four times and put it down before I finally ground my way through it, but called The Da Vinci Code. And it was somewhat of a popular way by a man by the name of Dan, Dan Brown of casting doubt upon or undermining the reality of the deity and ultimately the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in academic scholarly circles, there's a guy named Bart Ehrman running around kind of doing the same thing, and, and they're both knotheads, okay, at the end of the day. They, 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 they simply cannot prove the, their case because you cannot prove or disprove that which is absolutely certain. And so it is a certain thing, it is something that we can believe that Jesus did just as He said He would. He would enter Jerusalem, He would be betrayed, He would be handed over to the Gentiles, He would be crucified, and He would be raised on the third day. He said it, the Bible said it, and these witnesses say it in unison, and we can believe it. And you can be sure of this. Whatever your conspiracy theory is, or your alternative theory, whatever you want to call it, it could not and it would not hold together for 2,000 years. Now, my favorite analogy, and I've used it at least a half a dozen times, but it, something about this story absolutely thrills my heart. I was a big fan of a man by the name of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson served uh, in the inner circle with President Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon's presidency came to an end because of his knowledge and participation in what we know as the Watergate scandal. Colson was as vile and wicked and ruthless a man as, who has ever worked in politics. He would slit your throat, and I mean that probably literally, for his president. And he got caught up in that, and almost in a way like the Apostle Paul, on a Damascus road, so to speak. God saved him. In fact, he wrote a book about his conversion called Born Again. He, along with Jimmy Carter, kind of brought that phrase into the popular vernacular back in the mid-70s. But Colson said this, We were the most powerful group of men on the face of the earth. We got caught with our hand in the cookie jar. But all we had to do was batten down the hatches. All we had to do was lay low. All we had to do was stick together and shut up. And we would have survived 
the scandal. It would have never come to light. But things got a little hot and things got a little testy. And there's a man by the name of John Dean that went running to the authorities, spilling his gut to save his hiney. And the point he's making is, we had everything and couldn't keep a conspiracy going. It fell apart and it ended the presidency of Richard Nixon. He's saying this, this is a bunch of powerless disciples. They were commoners. They had nothing. They had no political power. They had no economic power. They had no power to speak of at all. And the pressure came upon them and not one of them crumbled. Every one of them was faithful unto death. And they knew if they had made it up, somebody would have crumbled along the way. But they couldn't crumble because it was true. And they faced literally and metaphorically the fire for the testimony of a resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, there is nothing in all of human history that is more certain than the fact that Jesus Christ, the one who hung on a cross on Friday as a substitute, as a sacrifice for our sins, there's nothing more certain than He walked out of that grave early on Sunday morning. And folks, we are gathered here, and we will gather here on each subsequent Sunday for that very reason. And so there's a certainty to the resurrection. And then, fourth thing this morning, I want you to see the necessity of the resurrection. Now, there's always been a group that wants to uh, do away with the resurrection and, and essentially say that you can still have Christianity, you can still have a gospel without a resurrected Savior. Well, that's, that's a fool's errand to say it as simply as I know how. But there is a necessity, and Paul begins to unpack that uh, beginning there in verse 12. And evidently he was aware among the many problems there in that church in Corinth, there were those that were at least entertaining the notion that maybe Christ had not been raised from the dead. Whatever their philosophical or religious framework was, this began to at least be an issue that they were discussing. And so he outlines it in this fashion. In verse 14 he says, If... Christ is not raised from the dead. If there is no resurrection uh, from the dead, our preaching is in vain. It's foolish. It's a waste of time. I preach so that you may believe. And there is not a worthy object for that faith. There is not a worthy subject for my proclamation. If Christ is not raised, there is no forgiveness of sin. There has not been an atonement for sin. And you are still in your sin. Your faith is empty. It is meaningless, it is null, it is void. And not only that, verse 15, I'm lying about God. Now, he was a good Jew. Now, in our culture, we feel like we can say, because we're Americans, we're free, you know, you know the drill. We can say anything we want to about any, anybody, anywhere, anytime. But a good Jew, he would have shaken in his boots at the idea of misrepresenting God. I think it falls under the category of taking his name in vain, actually. And so he says with great sobriety, if Christ is not raised, then we are false witnesses. We're lying. We're making a claim that God did something when in fact 
He did not. And in saying that Jesus was raised from the dead, we are saying He is uniquely the divine Son of God, the Savior, the singular and only Savior of the world. And so, God is being misrepresented. And you're still in your sins. The atonement was not accomplished. It was not finished. You better figure something out. And there's nothing that can be figured out. There is no amount of good works. There's no amount of virtue. There, there's no anything by which we may be saved. And so if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And for those of us that have lost loved ones, and I can look across this congregation today, and I know many of you, and I've been there at your side, as we have lost loved ones, then the reality is this, those that we have hope that they are with the Lord, that their suffering is ended, that is meaningless. It is vain. There is no reason to hope for anything if Christ is not raised. Those that have gone before us, they are, are not in the presence of Christ. They are still in their sins. They have lost. They have, they have perished. And correspondingly, verse 19 we have no hope. Every day, whether at kind of the personal level of interaction or whether it's from you know, the various news feeds that we get, I see the hopelessness of the world. I see the vanity of their pursuits. I, I, I see the way that people are throwing away uh, the opportunities that in the providence of God they have been provided with. And so, they are living without hope. They're, 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 they're living lives and they're, they're struggling through a fallen world and they're wrestling with the realities of sickness and sin and death and they live without hope and there is no transcendent, infinite, eternal hope upon which they may build their lives. It is all meaningless. It is all pointless. We're all dust in the wind. And one day that wind will simply blow away all remembrance of us. And folks, that's hopeless. And so if Christ is not raised, we have no hope. No one that's gone before us has any hope. And in fact, if there's not something beyond this life, that is a, the reward and the treasure for our faith in Christ, then we should be pitied. In fact, we have lost our mind. Folks, if Christ is not raised and you, you have wasted your time in showing up this morning and for 2,000 years the church has wasted their time, it's a beautiful day. We should be fishing. We should be playing golf. We should be celebrating the pagan fertility rites and hunting up Easter eggs. Whatever it is you want to do. You finally got it. That's good. Go do something else. I exhort you. Go do something. Go make some money so you can spend it on something silly. Go do something. Don't be here if Christ is not raised. And so, He has been raised. Verse 20. But in fact, the truth is, the reality is this, my truthful explanation, my, my, my truthful reflection upon this is that Christ really has 
been raised. And it was necessary for our salvation. Because you see, when sin entered the realm through that man, Adam, and it was imputed to us, his guilt and his death became our reality, then a man had to, as for us, go through and experience that death. The writer of Hebrews says he tasted death for everyone. He fully embraced and experienced death, and where it did defeat Adam, Jesus Christ, in the the most profound and powerful proclamation of victory, was raised from that grave. And the corollary is what? And we shall be also. That is, that I cannot stop the realities of mortality. I've mentioned family tradition. One of my family traditions, since as long as I remember, you get the family together and you make pictures. Everybody has new suits. If you were to go back through our family pictures, you could see kind of a commentary on the fashions of the 1970s. Uh, uh, turtlenecks instead of ties, wide ties, skinny ties, open collar, leisure suits, stack heels, bell-bottom cuffs, whole nine yards, folks. Not at one time. Over... over, over over the ten years. You can see quite a commentary of what went on in my family and I suspect many of yours. But again, why bother? Why do all of that? It's because we have hope. That, that those things are fond memories. But the ultimate reality, notice what I said there, the ultimate reality is that Christ died and His sacrifice, His atoning work for our sin was accepted by our Heavenly Father and He has defeated death. He shows us that He is the one powerful one who can reverse that which came into our realm through the rebellion of Adam. And the promise is that we too, one day, will participate in the resurrection, that we too, upon His return, will be raised. And so we can believe. We can believe that God will bring all things to their appropriate end. That as we read a little bit earlier, that He will work in all of the calamities of the age. And I look at an age that's full of calamities right now. But He will work all those things according to His good pleasure for our good. And our ultimate good, our final good, our consummate good will be one day. He will return. The trumpet will sound. shout of an archangel and the command of the Lord Himself. And we shall be raised. And so we look, we look back Because it's certain, it's real, it's true. He atoned, and the atonement was accepted, and He was raised, and He has the authority not only to lay down His life and take it up again, but to forgive our sins, which are many. For those who believe, He has forgiven. And we can look forward 
to the certainty that one day, the, that death, not even close to the final chapter of our lives, not even close, death, because of Christ and His victory over death, is simply when we step into eternity to experience the ultimate realities for which He lived, for which He died, for which He was raised, for which He remains to intercede, and for which one day He shall return to perfect. And so, it's good news. It's the best news. When the angels proclaimed and those, those first ladies, they ran back to those disciples and they began to talk what was considered foolishness. He's not in the tomb. The stone was rolled back. He's not there. He's not dead. He has risen. And we can say He has risen. Indeed, with certainty, with no ability. And it is a sufficient testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel through which our sins are forgiven. Pray with me if you will. Father, thank you for your word to us, for us. But in such a real way, it's not about us. It's about Him. It is the testimony of what Christ has done, of His triumph over all that afflicts us. And so, Lord, we thank you for the certainty. We thank you for the victory. I pray that we would live in light of all that's been accomplished for us through Him. Lord, it would always be my prayer that if there's someone under the sound of my voice, whether in this room, whether they're listening on the live stream, where they would listen to it at some point in the future, but they have never experienced the new birth, and they have never been born again, they have never repented and believed, they've never been converted, I pray that today, based on the, the reality of what you've done for us, that you would take that imperishable seed of the new birth, and you would work it into their heart, into their minds. And God, just as you raised your son from the dead, you would cause them to believe. That you would cause them to leave behind the reality of their own spiritual death. And they would come to know spiritual life. Again, for your glory and for their own good, we ask these things. Amen.